My guest on this episode is Dr. Joe Vipond. Joe is a emergency physician in Calgary, and he is the co-founder of Masks for Canada and a co-chair at the Calgary Climate Hub. Now, I have to issue yet another apology, which I seem to do a lot on this show, but I have already another Canadian on the program already and I couldn't even find somebody from a different city I have another Calgarian on so double apologies on my end and I I think that you know all this interaction I'm having with Albertans it's burning up a bit of my Saskatchewanian soul you now we discuss masks airborne transmission long covid uh, what's going on in the hospitals in Canada, uh, some of the stuff that he's had to deal with uh, in the medical system in Alberta. And uh, he has a very interesting point uh, early on in the episode. And it, and it shows uh, his, his principles and that involving this, this crisis that we've had for the last 13 months, that he's, he demonstrates that he has skin in the game and uh, took a, a stance, a stance that turned out to be one where he was 100% accurate, and uh, those that were opposed to him were dead wrong, and he faced personal cost for it. So in my personal opinion, uh, hats off to him for that. We also get into the public policy in Canada regarding COVID over the last year, uh, more than a year, I guess, now, uh, which I was, I was surprised we got into so much, you know, not for any particular reason. I just thought because since he's a physician that we'd get into mostly medical and scientific matters, and he would explain a lot of things to my feeble caveman brain. But I am a political dork, and so uh, I was perfectly okay with, with having that exchange. And uh, overall, we, we pretty much were in quite a bit of agreement on most things, like any two sane individuals. You know, there was a bit of a divergence on a couple things, and a couple minor issues, I don't think I really had too much agreement, but I didn't feel it was really necessary at all to for us to get caught up in the weeds on those matters. And I think on the public policy issue, I feel our conversation has highlighted a, another issue that uh, was really uh, a problem well before all of this, uh, but it was, I think, perhaps highlighted. Uh, through this crisis and maybe can be addressed in the political post-mortem of what's happened. And that's that you can't look at political thought through this you know, rigid, you know, one-dimensional lens or that people and uh, ideas can just move along you know, a single axis evenly, you know, left to right, that's it. And you've seen all sorts of different stripes uh, act in all sorts of different ways. Somebody of one stripe somewhere will react completely differently than somebody else of the same stripe somewhere else. Obviously, that applies to all sorts of different things, but it's really been highlighted with COVID, whereas uh, some have tried to make this a really rigid, simplistic, you know, sort of quote-unquote left-right issue uh, and it just hasn't worked out so well. And I've also seen those concerned about COVID in whichever way 
trying to bring in their political presuppositions to try to figure out what's going on, which also hasn't really applied for them so well, or those trying to take a particular position on COVID, trying to make this crisis all about their own you know, preconceived political battle, and also just in the end doesn't end up making a whole lot of sense. And as time goes on, I'm sure I'll have more to say on that matter. Uh, as I'm still trying to formulate as to what's exactly going on there myself. And as we concluded the discussion, Joe had a wonderful personal parable that excellently highlighted how, by taking action, you can see results accrue from that. And it made me think of, I heard uh, an excellent quote uh, stated from a great Canadian on a podcast that came out a few weeks ago, I think, but I just heard it the other day. The great Urshad Manji uh, had a, a quote from Edmund Burke that was, so I'm, you know, I'm needed to <laughs> disclaim that, I'm not going to pretend that I thought of this on my own, but I just heard that not so long ago and definitely made the connection when uh, Joe had his uh, last uh, little story at the end of our discussion here. And that is, no man makes a greater mistake than he who did nothing, because he could only do a little. So, as you think that you might not be able to do anything more about the crisis with COVID, or think that it's over, or want it to be over, even though it's not, or have just given up, well, you can still make a difference. Anyway, that's all my rambling and BS for today. So thanks for putting up with me yet again. And I hope you enjoy our discussion. I certainly did. Cheers, guys. All right. Well, thanks for coming on, Joe. And uh, I think we have a lot to discuss about uh, what work you've been doing over the past year. But uh, first, right now, uh, our neck of the woods is actually getting quite a bit of press, even internationally. And uh, there's there's a lot going on. So what do you take of the situation that's going on in uh, Canada right now? And well, or, or, you know, Calgary and Alberta in particular, if you want to specify. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that makes us so special uh, right at this moment is that we have all three of the novel variants, the variants of concern um, circulating in the community right now in our country. Uh, even here in in Alberta, we have... Um, P1, who's just peeked over the corner. I just noticed yesterday they've announced um, four new cases of the B1135, the South African variant. And of course, there's a whole heck of a lot of B117, which uh, seems to be everywhere now. Uh, but we're, we're special in that we have all three variants circulating and we don't know what that's going to mean. Uh, are they going to uh, compete against each other? And is one going to come up on top? What does that mean for morbidity mortality? I still think we don't know very much about P1 in and of itself in a community where mitigation is being practiced and vaccines are quite prevalent um, because most of the information we have on that uh, variant is out of Brazil where, I mean, things are falling apart. And and I don't know if um, looking at the the evidence uh, on a variant where your healthcare system is dysfunctional um, really gives you a sense as to to, to what it means for a for a, a functional system. So we're going to learn a lot over the next few weeks.
Yeah. And their government as a whole is pretty dysfunctional as well. Yeah. 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 So it's hard to say, you know, what, how much of those excess death tolls are accruing as a result of just, you know, ICO, ICUs have been overloaded for weeks now. And mm-hmm. it's, it, it's not like they're there. Uh, the, the data collection in Brazil is going to be uh, the best thing that you can get in the world. Now, uh, we so, still don't know about vaccines with some of these too, right? Like we know yeah. there's um, some, some mismatch between the AstraZeneca vaccine and the B1135, but with the P1 variant, um, I, I did a concerted search yesterday for evidence on this. And there's one um, kind of letter to the editor type um, uh, piece in the New England Journal of Medicine which talks about an in vitro study taking blood from vaccinated volunteers and then applying it to in vitro lab samples and seeing if the antibodies are sticky in the lab. I have no idea what that's going to translate to on the ground. And um, I'm just going to keep pretending I'm not vaccinated. I got my, my double vaccine in January and February. Um, so I'm considered fully vaccinated. But until I know better, I'm just going to pretend I'm, I don't have anything in my system. How's uh, vaccination been going for all the other healthcare workers? Pretty good. Well, we certainly haven't gotten everybody. We still have new outbreaks coming out in in our province. We had three announced in the last three days. Once at the one at the Rock uh, Royal Alex Hospital, one at the Rocky View, and one at the Cross Cross Cancer Institute. Um, so we're still getting healthcare workers getting sick from COVID. So, yeah, I you, you mentioned uh, AstraZeneca and B one three five one. Has there been, I haven't seen anything else yet with uh, the other vaccines interacting with it. Have you? Uh, my sense is they're pretty good match. So I know well, the Moderna and Pfizer, the, the two earlier ones, um, seem to, to have um, functionality there. So, No, oh, that's good. Um, and uh, there's a lot of press coming out lately about hospitals uh, out east in, in Ontario getting pretty hammered. Uh, have you seen anything of the sort yet in uh, Calgary? It's starting to creep up, but yeah, Ontario seems to be, for whatever reason, much, much worse than we are at, at, at this point. We have a much higher um, case count per 100,000 people than they do, yet their ICUs are overflowing. And I don't know if we're just slightly earlier in the course or if it's that our demographic's a little bit uh, younger. Um, uh, I think kind of suspect it's the former and that it, the, the badness is just going to to come as it as as the virus kind of cycles through its its process um we know that uh we, we that right now like we'll go back a, a couple steps back in november when the second wave was hitting my province um what i did was i applied all the previous statistics on hospitalizations icu and deaths to the to the day totals and I think it was pretty dramatic. People thought I was fear-mongering it. So, like, say there were 1,000 cases a day, I was saying, well, that's going to mean that there are six ICU admits from today alone, um, uh, four, uh, t- 10 deaths, and um, 35 hospital admissions. And people were like, you're crazy. That's, that's way too high. And then it would add them up. So the next day would be 1,200 new cases. And then I would say what that meant. And then, of course, like after a week, you've had these incredible totals because if you have, you know, 35 cases a day for a week, suddenly that's, you know, 240 cases. I'm, I'm not sure if my math is on. I'm trying to do this in my head as we go. But, but the numbers added up quite quickly. And I think it really was able to demonstrate 
to the population that, you know, these isolated numbers suddenly are put into a context of this is what it means for the healthcare system. At this point, I don't feel comfortable doing that because we don't know what that in relationship between the higher hospitalization rate, the higher ICU rate, the higher mortality with the variants versus the fact that the majority of our most vulnerable elderly population is vaccinated. So I've held off on doing that. But, um, but, but we know that as we have this exponential growth, I mean, geez, what was it yesterday? 1350, I think, cases a day. And, and growing, that uh, even if it's a, quite a small per- percentage of hospitalizations, ICUs, and deaths, it's going to add up and, um, because this is exponential growth and, and it's hard to fight exponential growth. What is R in Alberta? And do, and do you have R in Calgary in particular? The R, you know, I can bring that up. Um, I tweeted it out earlier today. It okay. was 1.26 for the entire province. Um, sorry, I'm filling air with some um, hum hums. Um, <laughs> hum away. For Calgary, it's um, it's 1.27. Um, oh. It's all pretty clustered. One point. Um, the south is good, but everywhere else, it's right around 1.27. So, um, and, and so we have we have the highest R value in the country, and some of the highest cases per per hundred thousand. And we just put in. Um, pretty middle-of-the-road, weak restrictions with uh, government infighting going on at the same time, saying that even that is too much. So I, I have very little faith that we're going to ride through this third wave very well. I think it's going to be the worst of the waves. Yeah, actually, from what you just said, I, I, I didn't uh, compare all the R values of province to province yet. Um, I've been mainly looking at uh, here in Saskatchewan, but I'm actually surprised that it's a little bit higher in Alberta than British Columbia and Ontario right now. And then you, you mentioned uh, what the, the Kenny government, the, the Alberta provincial government has been doing as of late to contend with the issue. Uh, what have they implemented uh, recently? In Ontario or, or sorry, Ken, Kenny's government? Yeah. Yeah. Jason Kenny's government. Yeah. In, in um, Alberta. The most recent thing was basically no, um, activities fun activities indoors for for adults strangely enough nothing for kids so my kids are still allowed to go to dance and basketball and um, what what have you indoors uh, band. Oh, really? um, and uh, so that that's one thing um, they've limited the uh, retail um, maximum to 15 percent of fire code it was I believe 25 percent just prior to this and um, no more uh, restaurant uh, and bar dining in 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 building dining, which starts on Friday. I'm always I know they want to give bars, you know, and restaurants a chance to to get rid of some of their in stock inventory in their fridge and stuff like that, so things don't spoil. But um, boy, it's it's crazy to think that there's going to be another four days of uh, before you know between the announcement of restrictions and the enactment of those restrictions. With ex- exponential growth, four days is a lot. Um, mm-hmm. There were some really good studies back in the spring that said, like, even a five-day uh, more rapid or a week more rapid uh, uh, implementation of restrictions would have resulted in, like, hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands of fewer um, um, COVID infections and the resulting uh, repercussions of that. Um, so time does matter. Um, schools are still open. Uh, 
And um, yeah, and there's certainly nothing like the Ontario lockdown order, whereas arguably um, things are looking to be much worse here than they are currently in Ontario. We're just a little bit farther behind. Yeah, just based on that that rate of growth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I look at the variants and it's it's somewhere around 600 cases of variants announced yesterday and probably best calculation is six to seven days of doubling time. So if you look at a six day doubling time, that means in six days, it'll be 1200 a day in 12 days, it'll be 2400 a day. Um, and we've never had more than 1800 cases uh, a day uh, in the province in the, in, in the course of the pandemic. So because it takes about 10 days for restrictions to roll through to having an impact on, on cases per day, we're, we're pretty much locked in um, 2,000 plus per day uh, infections. Like there's no way we can avoid it at this point and probably higher than that because I think these restrictions are pretty, pretty weak. Yeah, and, and there's so much that's different than a year ago. Like you mentioned that the, the elderly are all well vaccinated and that's going to have a huge impact. But what else is different? I feel that much of the population would have taken you know, the, their own reaction and uh, a lot of people would have implemented their own personal restrictions a year ago based on you know, what, what they would have felt would have been more of an unknown state, even mm-hmm. though there's so much that's you know, unknown at the present. It, it's still a, a major problem um, that that there 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 was a lot more general worry about. I you know I may be wrong, but I feel that that's a lot less amongst the general population. So in conjunction with the you know um, less less than adequate uh, restrictions that are being brought into place, do you think that people in general are going to be less apt now to take extra precautions on their own accord? which might also have an impact along with the uh, you know, laissez-faire approach. Yeah, government. it's hard to know because um, in my bubble, um, people are still really concerned. Like, and I realize that my social media bubble, I don't get to go outdoors and talk to people anymore. But um, you know, in, in the social media bubble that I, I exist in, people are very concerned. And a lot of people are starting to use N95s when they're going out in, in public and a lot of people are pulling their kids out of school, which they, um, you know, um, indicates that they have an increasing concern. The, I think part of the problem is, is our media and our social media tends to amplify the voices of the, of the, um, restriction fighters. Um, and so they're much more visible. Uh, I was just looking at, um, some statistics earlier today, that was saying that, you know, only um, somewhere around 20 to 25% of Albertans are actually anti-restriction. And yet there's a sense that the government is um, kind of catering to that extreme minority of the population um, by refusing to put in um, hard, hard restrictions at this point uh, to all of our detriment. So, I mean, I, I think we're the, if you look at the numbers, we're, we have the worst number in the country as far as anti-restrictions but it's still a very small percentage of the population they're just super loud and have political power because we have a far-right government there there is that you know people who are adamantly opposed um but 
but you did bring up a good point with the masks. Like a year ago, I would have known a lot of people that were concerned and taking a lot of precautions, but not wearing a mask just because you know, a lot of that, because the messaging around masks was, was so thin. Um, but now you'd have you know, a, a regular person, anybody would, would be wearing a mask. So I guess that is considerably different. But I wasn't so much referring to the the people that are, are really opposed, just sort of everybody in between, you know, the, mm-hmm. between those opposed and the COVID hawks like you and myself, um, which would which would constitute you know a, a considerable amount of the population and how, you know, they people might be you know, worn out with it all and, you know, less uh, concerned with, with every action that they're taking on a, on a day to day basis and maybe that having an impact. But as like as as I, I mentioned, you alluded to masks, and so that's changed so much for the positive that that might you know make everything I, better on its own. I think it's a reasonable thought experiment, but I think there's a counter um, thought to that as well, and that is that people will do what they're allowed to do. Like I heard on Ontario recently, um, Premier Ford was yelling at people for going to the malls. How can you guys be filling the malls? You you're crazy. Where's your personal responsibility? Well, hey, man, man, the malls are open. And so why wouldn't they go to the malls? Like you've essentially indicated to them that um, that malls uh, are okay to be in because they're open. Same goes for here. I heard, um, you know, our, our chief medical officer of health saying, you know, we've had so many events in restaurants. Um, we got to have people start behaving um, when it comes to restaurants. And I'm like, well, hey, you've left them open. Like they're just doing what they're allowed to do. I I, I make the analogy to the to, to the cookie jar. So you know, my my kids, if I leave the cookie jar out on the table um, filled with cookies and I walk away, and even if I don't say, you know, you guys, uh, you know, maybe you should think about not having a cookie. They're probably going to have a cookie, like because they're kids. And, whereas if I put the cookie jar on the top shelf and I put a lid on it. And I say, look, guys, if I've counted the cookies and if I see five cookies uh, now and there's three tomorrow, you guys are going to have a repercussion from that. Guess what? They're not going to take the cookies. And, and I think one of the things we've re- realized during this pandemic is that we as a society are rule followers. And if we're provided with a set of rules within which to work, the vast majority of the population is going to follow those rules. Um, masks were the perfect example of that, where in Calgary in um, you know late July, masks were not mandated, but they were recommended, and there was about 25% of the population, <clears throat> sorry, that was using that, using them. And then the day after they mandated the masks, it went up to 90%. Like people weren't afraid of the enforcement aspect of things they were basically saying, okay, well, now that it's the law, I don't want to be the guy that's out there not wearing a mask. I'm a, I'm a member of society. I'm going to follow the rules. So, um, you know, the, these exhortations to personal responsibility um, have failed throughout the, the, the second wave. Um, and then, no surprise, they failed, you know, in the run-up to the third wave, too. So we keep making the same mistakes over and over again. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you 100% on, on all of that. Um, and I, I just, I, w- I would say that, 
you know, some of the the negligence was filled in by by people. But it, yeah, it, it, on a general basis, it, it what should be done is, is what you've referred to, is that and and I think within Canadian culture for decades we've we've been sort of more of a you know not not a very loud population if there's rules in place as you mentioned we're we're generally going to follow them pretty well it's typically not that big of an issue and from a year ago like the what was coming out of ottawa a lot was that general idea is like we're not going to do anything extra but we're going to blame the public and now we see that with the provincial with some of the provincial governments you you mentioned the ford government in ontario and it's also happening quite a bit strongly with the uh, Horgan government in, in British Columbia as well. It's like, we're not going to implement you know, the restrictions that are necessary, but we're just going to push this all onto the backs of the public. It, yeah, it's, it's so you know, embarrassing. It, Kenny on, on Monday said, look, guys, I, I really wanted you guys to follow the rules and so I wouldn't have to do this. And look what you've made me do. Uh, it's really just an attempt to absolve them of, of, of responsibility for not governing. And I don't know how political this podcast gets, but I think it really... As much as become, we want it to. <laughs> I think it really has become evident that a libertarian um, uh, you know, bias or a libertarian um, paradigm doesn't work in times of crisis. Um, so as long as everything's going hunky-dory and you don't need society to act in a collective fashion, libertarianism probably is, is, is neutral or maybe not neutral but but not damaging but now i think it's it's pretty evident that it's damaging yeah i think there's going to need after this there's going to need to be some serious self-reflection within you know the more serious libertarian camps and that this this sort of idea that that's going around of and it's obviously it's a lot worse in the united states of you know people trying to push these you know what they're purporting to be these individual rights concerns to try to circumvent a, a collective effort to contend with the pandemic. And I've sort of seen it, you know, derivative of this, this weird interpretation of, of traditional liberalism. And in my mind, it's, it's, it seemed like Thomas Paine on meth in my mind. That's how I've sort of looked at it. And, you know, a lot of times it gets maligned as conservative, but the, you know, in the traditional conservative sense, there's, there's nothing really conservative about it. And it's, it's it's a strange ethos, and and it and it hasn't really done anybody a lot of good. Mm-hmm. And the, the interesting counterpoint to that is that we have um, an NDP government in BC who's um, arguably been as bad as any of the conservative governments, and yet we have conservative governments in Atlanta, Canada, uh, that arguably have been um, you know the the best you know best in class when it comes to governing COVID. So um, it certainly not doesn't fall strictly down on exactly those lines, but I think I mean just go through the the, the Johnsons, the Bolsonaro's, the Trumps, the Kennys, the the Fords, um, and the Moes, <laughs> uh, and you can see a, definitely a trend towards badness. The Legos, let's let's throw Lego in there as well as he's uh, done uh, quite hard, badly. Yeah, yeah, hard right wing. Um, government's kind of oh, failing outright. So, um, yeah, I, I, I don't think that's a trend that we can ignore. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And I, I think, you know, maybe a lot of it might have to do 
it's really hard to say one would have to really uh, look at, at at every particular factor but I, you know with, with mo and kenny but then you know we'd have to figure out what, what's going on with horgan but with mo and kenny like i think it's a change that's happened with 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 right-wing politics in canada where you know they're derivative of you know old reform and 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 that that sort of political movement where you might have a lot of the the red toryism that's still present out east with say the king government in mm. in prince edward island that that you know it's it's that sort of you know n- not really so much conservative but hardline neoliberal ideology mm-hmm. that might go more so with mo and kenny that might be an ex- uh, explanation for their actions but then as well too you know you see it with with, with social democrats whether it's the, the government in sweden or the government in victoria mm-hmm. that are are also completely negligent extremely so in sweden so i think i think one of the and and i don't mean to wax too philosophically but i i think one of the hardest things for me, Joshua, through this pandemic has been the realization that our society is not as strong as we wanted it to be. Um, the, the, the sad realization that we've had, we've made so many mistakes when it comes to policy that the, the leaders that we hoped we'd have, um, even within the, the field of medicine, have not led well. Um, and that this trend towards individuality over collective action since the end of the second world war has taken us to a point where, where we were kind of predestined to fail in a lot of ways. Um, and my background is, is in climate um, advocacy. And so I, despite the horrors of the pandemic, I still have not uh, lost my, my, my fear of what's going to come down the pipe as the climate uh, continues to be disrupted. And so I, I, for me, it's that reflection on um, what that means going forward for, for, for climate action. But then on the plus side, we do have, you know, the, the New Zealand's, the Taiwan's, the Japan's, the, the, even the, the, you know, the right wing government in, in, in Australia somehow managed to pull it off Atlantic Canada there are these shining lights of how it can be done right um, that that do give me some hope um, on on both fronts. So, yeah, well, it's I think it's going to take a, a long time to sort of you know parse through what what what's happened and and what needs to be resolved. And it's 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 pretty complex, but I think um, we should maybe accommodate our uh foreign audience which will probably okay, be the, the the majority uh sort of run over how you've seen things have have gone in canada uh, on the policy front over the last year and also feel free to to pick out you know, any particular provincial government and, and what's been going on there and for anybody outside of canada who's not you know uh, too familiar with our our government structure we are you know a federation you know our provinces don't have quite as much power as the states but it's extremely comparable same with same with the australians well it's been a fascinating journey i'll tell you that joshua um and maybe i'll just talk would it be reasonable to just talk a little bit about my history through the pandemic and then we can maybe pick up some of the the history there so i mean i think back around may 5th or march 15th last year things were starting to hit the fan and i started to realize that as an emergency physician that i better get to know this virus 
pretty well because I'm going to be dealing with it. And I think because I've always had a, a dabbling in public policy and a dabbling in advocacy, I maybe took it as a different lens than some of my colleagues. And so the first thing that I, you know, I think I just like maybe some of my colleagues just started reading a lot. Um, and my family had moved into my in-laws. Unfortunately, my in-laws were five doors down from me just because we saw what was going on in New York City. And, um, and you know, the, the healthcare workers in New York City were being decimated by the virus. And it's like, you know, it's okay if I get the virus, but I'm not giving it to you guys. And so we, we, we sent them five doors down and, and I got to hang out with them outdoors every once in a while. But I mean, I had a lot of free time, you know, when you, when you have kids and suddenly you don't have kids, suddenly you have a lot more time to yourself. So I did a lot of reading. And the first thing that I recognized was that there was asymptomatic spread and we needed to manage that. And the second thing was that we needed to wear masks. Um, now, locally, we had our local ID people who basically were saying out loud in public that there was no asymptomatic spread and there was no nosocomial or in-hospital spread. And therefore, we didn't need to wear masks. And so I started wearing a mask at work and I started asking our leadership to, to basically enforce a mandatory uh, universal mask masking in the, in the, in the emerge. And I got in trouble. I actually had, uh, was disciplined. I had 10 days to go think about what Sorry I to cut you off. Why? Because I was just a frontline emerge doc. Um, and I was out of my lane and I was disrupting the hierarchy. So, um, so during that 10-day period, that gave me even more time where I'm not working, I'm not hanging around with kids. Um, and, and basically, I had the time to, to even think more about what was going on. And, um, and so it was pretty clear I, I was not able to advocate within the hospital system anymore because that, I somehow burned that bridge. Um, but then I thought, well, maybe we should start looking at masking like if this is going to be important for in the hospital, it's probably going to be important everywhere. So we should start doing masks. And I don't know if you recall at that time, Joshua, but the the um, the line from the powers that be, from Teresa Tam and our public health officers, is masks were dangerous. We shouldn't be wearing masks. Um, you should only wear a mask if you're symptomatic. So that means if you had a cough or a runny nose. But at the same time. The other messaging was, if you had a cough or a runny nose, you should be staying at home in your basement. You should not be going out in public. So it was a bit of a weird messaging. Only wear a mask if you're symptomatic. But if you're symptomatic, you don't have to wear a mask because you're going to be staying at home anyways. Well, it was actually um, worse than that. Uh, Teresa Tam, was she, she, she elaborated quite a bit and was even worse than, than Anthony Fauci on this. She, she went into detail about basically how the population were going to be too inept to really wear a mask and oh well we're just going to be touching our face all the time etc 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 you're you're not going to be able to use it well if you went if you spend as much time you know going through you know talking to us like we're nine-year-olds wash your hands wash your hands wash your hands and spent that amount same amount of time money and resources on 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 uh public messaging on, on mask use well you might have quite a number of Canadian mask wearing gurus in the population. But yeah, anyway, yeah, I, I recall yeah. that nonsense. So we, we wrote an op-ed. We were the first first public exhortation to, to allow masking. Um, and that I think was April 7th. 
And then we were allowed to wear masks, thankfully. Um, the CDC first uh, allowed it, and then um, PHAC uh, quickly followed after that. And then um, we moved on to um, uh, saying, well, now it needs to be mandatory. And by this time, I'd been in the media a lot, and I was tweeting a lot about this. And there was a gathering of people that were kind of thinking the same way. And so at one point, we're like, hey, we need to get together and start to work on stuff. Um, so we formed something called Mass for Canada, and uh, which is still going strong, grassroots group of people, um, some physicians, but also uh, I think we have a dental hygienist and we have some occupational hygiene uh, people and we have, um, you know, uh, uh, professors of uh, literature. It's a, it's a, it's a quite wide swath of, 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 um, of, of civil society. And, um, then we, we started to, to work together. And I, I, um, I think one of the things that became evident is that power of organization, um, the ability to like bounce ideas off of each other. Oh, that's a great idea. Oh, what are you thinking there? That's not a good idea. And then we started working on um, mask mandates across the country. We started putting um, maps together of where places where, where masks were mandated. Um, when the schools finally opened up, um, we started collecting data on where the, the schools were having cases. Um, and we have a map up there about where where schools were. And then, of course, when the second wave started to build, it was through that organization that we um, uh, started to to push forth our efforts on getting restrictions in place when uh, when our various governments were refusing to do so. And so we wrote open letters and we met with politicians and um, met with our chief medical officer of health a few times, and we just did not stop. Um, and, um, yeah. And, and, and more recently, uh, what we've been focusing on, um, well, obviously through the third, third wave, we're trying to get restrictions put in place again. Uh, but the other thing that's been a really interesting fight over the last few years, uh, or sorry, a few months has been airborne transmission. Uh, because we've known pretty early on in the pandemic that airborne transmission is a big factor in in covid um, mitigation strategies there's just different strategies you put in place if this is contact droplet like we've been told for so long than if it's airborne and and those things which you probably heard of a, a bunch about is ventilation um better masking tight-fitting masks um and you know uh, the need for if you're in prolonged indoor spaces that that um that distancing doesn't make a difference um so if you're in any indoor space for a prolonged period, it, it's not that you have to not wear a mask if you're two meters apart. You just have to wear a mask all the time, um, and so um, and so that's been been an interesting um, evolution uh, as the CDC is finally starting to get more vocal on that. The biggest resistance is is the WHO, um, but even. This week, when the new restrictions were put out by the by the Kenny government, I saw the words, um, because this is a droplet spread disease, um, and so we still have not won this 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 battle. Yeah, no, it's, and I think it's going to take quite a while yet. I, yeah, I think if you get people on board with with proper mask use and wearing, uh, you know, proper masks and proper mask use. Then, in doing so, you can kind of, you know, in a way, circumvent 
circumvent getting uh, all the full messaging out about airborne transmission because there's so much pushback from that and it's going to take seemingly quite a while you know maybe i'm wrong maybe it can turn on a dime to we have a an event tomorrow, which I'm very excited about. Um, which uh, tomorrow, this is gonna be, I'm sure this podcast will be will be dropped after tomorrow, but I'm sure there'll be a recording where people can find it. Where the director of policy, uh, one of the chief policy advisors for the WHO, is going to be advocating against airborne transmission against two of my favorite um, COVID people, uh, David Fisman, U of T uh, infectious disease specialist, and Kim mm-hmm. Prather who's an airborne um, uh, sort of aerosol engineer at the University of Southern California. Um, and it's going to be a fascinating discussion, and we really hope that it will relaunch the effort to get this recognized as an airborne, airborne uh, disease. Absolutely. And in the, in the preceding episode on this program was with... Uh... Jose Luis Jimenez from University of Colorado Boulder. So if anybody is just popping to this program now and you, I have a whole episode just on this topic preceding this one that you can check out. Yeah. All all three mentioned have have been doing brilliant, important work on this very significant issue. Yeah. I think it's, it's so important for us to understand the, the basis of transmission for this, because if we get it wrong, then we get all the mitigation strategies wrong. Like it's like saying, you know, climate change is real, but it's not from humans. Well, if you make that initial mistake, then you're you're never going to fix climate change because you're going to be trying to, I don't know, put quirks in volcanoes or something like that. Um, uh, whereas you know that once you know that it's it's human caused, then you can actually manage that. So it's really important that we understand these fundamentals. Yes, no, I, I absolutely agree. It's just been quite the, quite the not, not even just the difficult, but the odd uphill battle over the past year in mm-hmm. dealing with that. Yeah, I think there's a, a bunch of reasons for that. I'm, I'm, you probably went over this with Dr. Jimenez, but um, like there, there's more significant cost that goes into dealing with this as an airborne uh, disease. You have to go into buildings. You have to measure ventilation rates. You have to improve ventilation if they're not up to snuff, you have to do better um, distancing. The masks need to be upgraded. Um, you've probably seen those little plastic masks that sit on people's chins and kind of sit off their faces. The, oh, the, my God. I can't believe they're real. It's not working. <laughs> well, I've I seen one of those in Costco, and I just I, I couldn't believe it was a thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I mean, it does change the way you have to approach this. But I think there's, and you've probably seen this, Joshua, this, this idea that we're, all we got to do is get through this vaccination phase and we're free and therefore we don't have to put any long-term, um, you know, expensive mitigation processes in place. And I think we're seeing with this third wave is that we can't ignore all the other stuff, that, that immunization uh, isn't a panacea. It's not going to fix everything. Even when everybody uh, or 80% of the population is vaccinated, we're probably still going to need some of these non-pharmacological interventions in order to, to keep things down. And with the variants, it's, it's, um, you know, there's always that fear that we're going to be dealing with variant waves going forward. So we might as well get this right now, rather than saying, well, I don't want to do anything hard because, you know, we have um, technology that's going to save us shortly. It's kind of like climate change. Yeah. yeah. Do, do you think 
that uh, a lot of it why why so many policymakers are so apprehensive with, with really bringing the hammer down and, and, and getting this dealt with at this moment is that it, it they might lose some some capital by demonstrating that they've been doing it wrong for a year yeah that's a that's an interesting question from from the uh, most cynical avenues of my brain yeah, I mean, I think even people have, have told me, uh, yeah, have, you probably had somebody on with COVID zero discussion before, eh, Joshua? Yeah. Um, yeah, so just going to the COVID zero, like some people have told me, like, there's no way that Kenny can eat up all of his political capital on chasing a COVID zero strategy. And I'm like, what do you mean? Like the, the most popular premiers in the country are in the Atlantic provinces. Jacinda Arden is probably the most popular <laughs> leader in the world right now, for at least in the Western world, for what she's done. Um, and, uh, you know, th this is a winning political strategy. Um, but you've got to be a leader. And you've got to be, it, you be willing to do the marshmallow test. And, and I'm sure you've had people talk about the marshmallow test, that idea that the Stanford experiment where a kid who's three years old has a marshmallow on the table and you say, you know, if you can wait 10 minutes, I'm going to give you a second marshmallow. And then the researcher walks out of the room and only about 30% of the kids can hold off on grabbing that marshmallow. Um, and so we, uh, we collectively um, in much of North America have, and Europe have failed our marshmallow test because we can't go through that extra seven weeks of restrictions to get the numbers down. And we can't contemplate closing our borders to interprovincial travel um and it's unfortunate because i think politically it's actually the way to become popular what's worked now for kenny has oh he's got the lowest lowest popularity in the country and um, i think uh, for for reasons that i haven't been able to figure out yet there's there's going to be and you know it's not like they're the most wealthy province and you know there's long-term issues but the the because McNeil resigned at some point, but whoever the new premier is in Nova Scotia, he's actually somehow below Kenny for, for reasons I haven't been able to figure out. Mm. But yeah, Kenny's... Time will he, tell. Yeah, <laughs> he's, he's not doing so well. But, yeah. but no, yeah, no, you're, 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 you're absolutely right there. Sometimes leaders have to lead. Yeah. Um, and, and so, so back to, to what I was uh, getting at before, how... how uh, just outline for everybody, and and also just you know not not just the you know a cold sterile um, recollection of events, but you know uh, what have you seen happen in the country over the the last year as far as policy and how that's progressed, and you know anything in particular you you found interesting in in, in any particular provinces, and we you know we've already you know mentioned that you know the the three western provinces have really done some really dumb things and you know the four eastern provinces have done a lot of really great things yeah i mean it has been i i, I think what i think has been the hardest thing and maybe this is just from my perspective as an advocate is that every every progressive action everything that's been good has had to be fought for um and I wouldn't have expected that. Like I would have just expected um, that some of these things would have just been naturally you know, taken on. And so when I'm talking about stuff like this, I'm talking about like 
recognizing that racialized communities are the highest at risk um, for COVID and, and mortality um, because of the nature of their work predominantly and their living spaces. Um, you know, uh, the meatpacking plants, debacles, multiple debacles, serial debacles in, in Alberta and elsewhere in Canada and the United States. Um, quite shocking that we haven't, we're not able to recognize those things and, and, um, and mitigate that. Um, the, the masks, the fighting for restrictions, um, the, the attempts to convince leaders that anticipating problems rather than reacting to them is the best way forward. Uh, I've, I, I, for, I, I initiated the hashtag uh, preventable and predictable wave for this third wave because um, by this third wave, we should have been able to see that we know how to deal with this, right? Like we'd gone through two previous waves here. We'd seen other waves go around the world. And we know that, you know, government imposed restrictions are really the only way of successfully managing an exponential curve and along with that covid zero is the only successful long-term strategy and and yet we have been unable to convince our governments um to anticipate and act early and to and to do covid zero so i think from a policy perspective it's that it's just always been a fight and <laughs> i think i was pretty naive and i was like hey we won the mask battle yay i can relax now and there's like there's never been a relaxing. If anything, I'm having to fight harder now than at any point in the pandemic. And it's, it's quite frankly, quite exhausting. Yeah. And what, what, what do you think has, has caused the, the federal government to, to stand back so much? Like there was a talk early, I believe April, pretty much exactly a year ago now, I think when, when uh, Justin Trudeau met with all the premiers and uh, they unanimously said that uh, the Emergencies Act um, shouldn't be implemented. And for, for anybody uh, listening doesn't know what that is, it used to be called the, the War Measures Act and was uh, implemented once during the FLQ crisis uh, by our prime minister's father. And uh, what that does is it allows the federal government to supersede some of the provincial powers. And uh, so why do you think that you know, all of the premiers were opposed to this and still are. There was another discussion uh, re very recently, again, between uh, Ottawa and, and, and the provinces, and it was shut down again. So wh why do you think the premiers, all of them, are so opposed to this? And, and why uh, Justin Trudeau hasn't been pushing harder for this or just implemented it anyway, considering yeah, just, that, that his popularity hasn't really gone down as well, too? Yeah, it just was the challenges of, of, of our style of federalism um, and that everything is political, right? I mean, it's, it's all about power. Um, so arguably you could say, why does a, you know, 40 year old um, Filipino woman in Northeast Calgary deserve to have less protection from a deadly virus than a 40 year old Filipino woman in Halifax? Um, and, uh, as a Canadian citizen with a federal government, we should be deserving 
of the same level of protection. Uh, I think you can make that ethical, moral, and maybe even political argument. Um, but at this, but but Justin Trudeau uh, is unwilling to step on the toes of you know ten previews and 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 three territorial leaders. So um, and that's a political choice that he's made. And um, I, I you know as we have continue to have half measures here in Alberta, and I see this exponential curve, and I I look on the horizon to you know incredible suffering from hospitalizations, uh, uh, deaths, and long COVID um, here in my province. And, and I think, you know, why, why not have a federal standard for, for, for policy um, within, within the country? Um, but maybe, I mean, we've talked a, a little bit about my interest in, in climate policy. There has been a lot of political capital expended on having a federal um, approach that supersedes provincial powers uh, on climate, and so maybe maybe two existential crises for one federal government to deal with at once is is a bridge too far. Yeah, or, or maybe, and and as well too, like uh, there's going to be um, uh, energy sector reform and, and all sorts of changes going on there for years and decades to come. So. You know, maybe in the eyes of some politicians that this is a months or year long thing and just ride it out and, and, and move on to the next issue after that was, you know, per, perhaps their, their thought. Eventually the bodies will slow down and we won't have to bury as many, right? So eventually this will become less of a story. They're just, they're just people. Yeah, it's, it's been a brutal year. Yeah. Yeah, uh, you you mentioned long COVID there. Um, uh, what it, uh, like as you you're you're an emergency MD? Uh, have you had any um, firsthand experience ha- having to contend with that with, with any patients? Yeah, I've had a, a couple. Um, I have one colleague who did get unwell, and um, I've heard through other colleagues that that person has had to take time off um, and shift shift um, their schedule in order to to deal with the fatigue that has has followed the illness um, I also had a, a interestingly enough a neighbor that I saw as a patient um, uh, in the emerge who had intractable vertigo came in with like this sudden bam like unable to world spinning um, having to lie in bed because uh, of the the intractable vertigo and the nausea that came from it, and I know that things are getting a little bit better, but I know that it's been weeks of of symptoms. Um, and so th- those are my two, you know, personal experiences with long COVID. Um, but the more we learn about this, the more terrifying it is. Like just yesterday, the report on mental health and the exacerbations of mental health. We also just recently saw that erectile dysfunction is, what, eight times higher in long COVID uh, sufferers than non-long COVID sufferers. Um, and then that's on top of the stuff we already knew, which was fatigue and cognitive dysfunction and uh, chronic chest pain and chronic uh, shortness of breath. Um, and um, I don't know if your, your listeners are up on this stuff, but it's, it seems to be irrespective of age. So, so about 10% of kids are getting this. And it's also irrespective of, um, of 
the severity of the initial illness. So you can even have, you know, a very mild form of, of COVID to start with and still be at risk of having, having long COVID. Um, and it's affecting 10 to 30%. So remember I was saying that uh, in November, I felt comfortable predicting the, uh, the, the daily numbers and how that would roll out to those acute impacts. But I feel pretty comfortable now that, you know, we can easily say that with yesterday's um, 1,300 numbers in, in, in Alberta, that's going to translate to uh, about 130 to 390 uh, Albertans with a long-term disability. Um, and so that, that's really sobering from one day's cases. Yeah, that, that is a big number. Uh, and one thing I've been wanting to ask a physician for a while, uh, what the hell is COVID toes? So I have, I've seen it once. Um, the traditional description of it is in pediatrics that the kids were getting this, um, that it was happening quite late. So, you know, people would, um, to be testing negative for it, but there was evidence that they had gotten COVID earlier. And it seems to be like a, a microvascular problem and that there's these little clots. We know that COVID, um, uh, one of the, the sequelae of that uh, post-acute infection um, is, is um, uh, thrombotic events, so clotting. And so it looks like these are little clotting events that happen um, and, and cause your toes to kind of go a purpley red color in splotches. Um, I've only seen it the one time I saw it back in April and I haven't seen it since. Um, and I haven't heard any recent descriptions on it, but that's, that's as much as I can tell you. Okay. Yeah. That, that one's always just, I, I haven't been able to understand and it seems to really stand out from, from the rest of the, uh, you know, long-term chronic symptom symptoms that, that people are having to face. Yeah. I don't think it's a long-term thing. I think it, oh, it goes okay. and I don't, I don't even think it's painful. I think it's just, Oh my God, what's wrong with my toes? They look all purple. Um, um so, uh, uh, but I'm not an expert on this, so I, I could have aspects of that wrong. Um, but I think one, I think what this has really, um, been fascinating for, for physicians is how many different ways this presents, right? Like, can you think of, uh, any other, maybe even virus or never mind any other illness where like the acute presentation can be asymptomatic or a sore throat or pneumonia or diarrhea? Like it's, it's such a huge spectrum or just like weakness or confusion in some of the older, older patients. Yeah. Um, it's like, does like maybe early HIV, like when somebody gets infected, have a, a, a wide variety like that? Well, actually HIV is, I guess, in some ways similar in that in the late infection of HIV, you just have all sorts of weird infections um, and they're very atypical infections. So you were seeing atypical pneumonias and you were seeing some weird cancers that were associated with it. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, brain, brain infections. Um, and so it could present in all sorts of, uh, a multi multitude of ways, but, but those were all kind of secondary, um, diseases associated with HIV that were kind of brought out by HIV. Whereas this is the, the, the virus itself. It just has so many sneaky little ways of doing things. And then the long-term on top of that, so they have increased clotting. So we're, you know, people are dying late because they have, you know, clots in the lungs and um, then all the other long-term um, aspects of things. 
uh, from the long COVID. Like it's, it's, it'd be hard. Like if you were like writing a, uh, um, a pandemic story, like there's no way that you could convince any of your readers that, that <laughs> any of this could be true. It's a, it's a classic truth is stranger, stranger than fiction type of scenario. Yeah. I, I have found like for the whole year, what's been, what's been happening to, uh, to people, just um, the, the, that range of symptoms, just absolutely bizarre. And, and a question just popped in my head, you know, as somebody who's not a scientist and, and, and uh, just essentially your average person. Um, one thing that I, I haven't seen really covered a lot is when somebody has very severe acute symptoms and are, um, at, at severe risk of death or who uh, happen to reach their demise, what is actually, what, what are the, the symptoms that, that people in that critical condition, what are they experiencing and what actually happens to them that can cause a fatality? Well, the thing is, is there's so many different, different ways that they do that. Um, the classic one is just, the pneumonia, they get this thing called pneumonitis. It's, it's like an in, inflammation of the lungs, which seems to be a combination of the, the virus itself and the body's attempt to deal with the virus. Um, and so the, the classic way of, of dying is then your lungs just crap out and then you get multi-system organ failure. So your liver shuts down, your kidneys shut down, your, your heart's not working very well, and then, and then you pass away. Um, I'm hearing more of people being put on ECMO, and I'm not sure if you or your listeners know what ECMO is, but it stands. Well, for, I sure as hell don't. So, <laughs> yeah. extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, and so basically, this is what we uh, euphemistically call a heart and lung machine, developed so that people can actually work, do surgery on the heart. So, um, so it was initially developed so that if uh, somebody needed some intracardiac surgery, you could essentially um, disconnect the plumbing from the heart uh, and the lungs and continue to pump oxygenated blood through a body while a surgeon is working on a heart that's not beating. Um, and then they rehook everything and let the heart go. But it's, it's, it, it kind of evolved into an intensive care unit tool where, um, you know, if your heart and lungs were completely failing, you could take someone, basically they're, they're, they're dying or they're dead. You could take them off that circuit and then keep them alive um, by using this heart and lung machine for a period of time while hoping that their heart and lungs would heal during that period. And we're seeing this being used a lot more in the last few months because our ICU patient population is getting younger. Um, than it was in the first or the second wave. And there's a, you know, a, a bit of a desperation in our ICU doctors to, to keep people who have otherwise preventable deaths from dying. Um, I, I don't know if I've read how successful it being. Like, I don't know what percentage of people on ECMO are surviving ECMO um, and how many, how many are dying, but I'm hearing about it a lot more. Yeah, anecdotally, you're seeing some positive results from that. I I'm not an ICU doc, and I'm not in any discussions where I know what the outcomes are. I'm just hearing 
uh, in news reports and in, oh, in chat discussions that ECMO is being used a lot more, uh, that a lot of the people in the ICU are on ECMO. So you mentioned that you're seeing a lot more young people uh, entering the ICU. What's going on there? Well, we've protected our, you know, vaccines work. So the, the elder population, which are the most susceptible to the death from COVID, have been vaccinated early on in the disease. Um, and on top of that, there seems to be in all three of the, the variants that are circulating in Canada, um, that these three variants have um, worse outcomes in younger people. So um, more likelihood of having severe disease at a younger age. So I think it's the combination of those two things. Great. Yeah. Uh, um, now, from uh, your your work as a as a physician, uh, what at what point, uh, like as as you mentioned before, like it's 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 looking like the worst point could be you know next week or the week after that or the week after that or something like that or the week after that. Right, right, exactly. I think Ontario's finally done it, so Ontario's okay, but uh, um, I'm not sure where you guys are at in Saskatchewan, Um, but yeah, BC and uh, Alberta were in trouble. Saskatchewan's weird, and I and I think you you might have seen this, but uh, ours gone down in Regina, but uh, it was between 85 and 90 percent of the the new variant cases were all accumulated in Regina. And, you know, a lot more in the southern part of the province, you know, and then earlier on, it was a lot more dispersed. You had a lot, a little bit more in Saskatoon area, Prince Albert area, the north, but it, all the variant cases were in Regina. Ours gone down there now, Regina, and it's going up in Saskatoon. Um, But everything is all in Regina and they shut a lot of other stuff down. So there, there hasn't been too much overwhelming of, of hospitals or anything, but we're, we're still not in a good state in Saskatchewan, but things are, are definitely worse. Just now. looking at the numbers right now and Regina does have the honor of being the worst cases per hundred thousand of all this, the cities that I see on here. I don't see that. I think, I think that includes the United States too, just not, not really? Mexico. Well, yeah. I think Regina has more cases uh, in, in ratio to the population than anywhere in the United States or Quebec City's nipping at your heels though. Oh, geez. <laughs> That's the, yeah. the other fascinating place, which I think it's worthwhile mentioning from uh, Hey, what are they doing? Right. A perspective is Manitoba. Um, and the only thing I can think of there is that um, they actually put in interprovincial travel restrictions there, that, that unlike the other COVID-6. And so if you want to travel into Manitoba, you have to quarantine for two weeks. And whereas if I want to go to BC, I can just cross the border tomorrow and then pick up P1 and, and come back the next day. Um, and either way over that border, there's no restrictions at all. And I think that's been a real um, policy miss. I think that's been the... the probably the main reason why the Atlantic provinces are doing so well. Uh, one of the reasons, and um, one of the reasons why the, the other five of the COVID six provinces are doing so horribly. Yeah. Uh, one other, th- the, one other thing they did well. And, and as of late, I've been pushing back a bit harder against the, the, the COVID six. Cause I think Manitoba has much been more an in between. And, you know, even though there's tons of room for improvement, you know, I think at this point in time, we got to give, you know, certain places credit where credit's mm-hmm. due. The Manitoba is sort of this weird in between 
uh, as I've sort of seen it uh, throughout 2021. Uh, but the the other thing I think look, is, we can it, learn. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, we're adapting. But I think the other the one is is uh, they haven't fucked around with enforcement. It, it's mm-hmm. it's been pretty big in in Manitoba, and I think that got things under control a lot. They they uh, is not just the provincial government, but I think the the city government, Winnipeg too, made it pretty clearly on that. You know, we're we're not screwing around. You know, we're we're going to have these restrictions, and you know, if you if you don't care about them, then there, you know, consequences may be coming your way. Um, but yeah, they, they, those uh, interprovincial uh, border restrictions definitely would have made a big thing. And, and what I'm surprised when they implemented them, what was that in January, that uh, that didn't, you know, catch on into people's minds a bit more uh, across the country. Well, you remember that Horgan was contemplating it and then okay. dismissed it. Um, I think that was maybe in November or December. Um, and I think he actually said the words, well, we, we can't, there's no way we can actually um, legally do this. But obviously you can because five out of the 10 provinces have successfully done that. Um, and, uh, you know, when everybody challenges this to me, when it comes to me talking about this about Alberta, it's like, well, I'm not saying it's going to be easy. But just because it's not easy doesn't mean it's not necessary and not possible. I mean, we have lots of people out of work here. Give them a, a highway vest and put them on a roadblock at the, at the border and, and turn people back. Um, and, uh, you know, this, this is, a, this is a, a possibility. We are in a pandemic. This, this idea that... Um, we can't inconvenience people because they need to, the status quo must live on, I think is um, naive at best. And we're seeing that. Can you imagine how much better? I mean, I'm probably one of the main reasons why Manitoba is doing so well is because it doesn't have variants there. Um, and so the only way of pre- preventing variants from getting into a place is by having travel restrictions. And, and I, think they, I think they have one. Yeah. Well, 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 I'm not sure, but it's not like, the, the 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 other three to the west of them mm-hmm. and and they, they've done a, a lot more to, to stamp it down and as well too like the, the whole idea that oh we can't implement a, a border restriction it's sort of hand waving it's just like oh well we're, we're not going to do it we can't so mm-hmm. just for, forget about it like what like what's the difference between uh, there, there's less crossings at the bc alberta border than there is at the saskatchewan manitoba border mm-hmm. and that one's shut down and you know, with with your with the border between our two provinces, like we we'd, it'd be the same thing. We just have to figure out what to do with Lloyd Minster. And, and uh, can can we just talk about racism for a couple seconds? Because this whole travel restriction thing was perfected in East Asia, along with masking, along with other um, you know interventions uh, in in East Asia way back at the beginning of the pandemic, and successfully and, and ongoing successful successfully. Um, and I have friends who, who live in East Asia and they say, you know, if, if I'm going to, if someone's going to come visit me, uh, they land at the airport, they are shuttled onto a bus after going through border control. There's no way of getting off of that bus. That's basically you're, you know, put down a corridor with, with no doors on it and you're get on the bus and then you're put into a hotel room for two weeks. And if you leave that hotel room, you get like a $10,000 fine. And that's, I think, to a lot of Canadians, that sounds extreme, but 
people just accept that if I look, if I want to go to to China or if I want to go to South Korea, that's going to be the repercut. That's going to be the the consequence of wanting to do that trip. And so I better really want to do that trip in order to suffer through that. And similar, you know, maybe not quite as extreme, but similar um, actions exist if I were to want to go to Newfoundland, for example. And um, and I do think that there's been an element of this. Well, you know, South Korea is not Canada. They're different from us, and therefore we can't do the the same things. Um, and I think that's been belied by some of the successes. Which I I don't know how many times I can one podcast go back to uh, ex, uh, extolling the, the the virtues of uh, Atlantic Canada's policies. But um, but I think you can see that that we can do that as a society if we decide that it's important enough. Yeah, no, I, I think so. Um, and and as I sort of mentioned before, like I, I, I think, you know, and maybe things have changed a, a lot more than I think they do. But I, I feel like in Canada, there, there there's more. You know, I don't think it's too hard to get everybody to to follow along, and and it wouldn't be that hard. And I, I think some have, have just sort of hand waved it away by just saying, well, we can't do it. And, and then it all comes down to policy failure. I think if it, the, these things just would have been implemented, you know, it wouldn't have been the end of the world. You know, it, it wouldn't have caused that big of an uproar and mm-hmm. it would have worked out fine. I think we're absolutely capable of doing it. And I think you kind of mentioned it earlier in the podcast where it's like, and now if they start doing that stuff, they're admitting that everything they've done up to this point is wrong. And that's, that's hard for people to do. It's like the WHO admitting that COVID is airborne. Oh, so you mean for the last 14 months, we've been, you know, working under the wrong framework and it's our fault that in 196 countries have been working under the wrong framework. That's a hard thing to admit, especially when people are dying because of those decisions. And so you can see why there's a resistance to back down on admitting some of those failures. Yeah. Uh, on the airborne one, in which I didn't know until I spoke with uh, Dr. Jimenez, it, that issue of a certain bit of scientific, scientific dogmatism is really ingrained, which I didn't know about before. And so that particular issue, the, the rabbit hole goes really, really deep for, mm-hmm. from, from what I've been told. But you know, even, you know, if it does get out, like, I, I think health agencies are a little bit more apt to to make changes than, than politicians are, because they don't have to go to the electorate at some point in time and, and admit that, you know, they, they had this huge thing wrong. You know, I think some of them might be able to, you know, if, if they turn around soon enough, they might not be able to worry about it, like, you know, uh, Boris Johnson in Britain. He had the idea. He first he his his policy was rather uniform to Sweden. You know, let's go for herd immunity, and that only lasted a couple of weeks or so. And then he you know he turned around to sort of a middle of the road mitigation sort of strategy. Um, but like and as well too, like Tam was against masks, and then by September she's telling people that they should be wearing masks while they're going for a romp in the hay. So mm. yeah, yeah. I I think politicians are afraid of admitting that they're wrong but i think the electorate is very forgiving of a politician that actually honestly says that they're wrong you look at the um, this may be getting too much into the the history of alberta politics but we had a premier here called premier um, ralph klein who um 
was kind of loved. He was a bit of a jerk and he was a bit of a libertarian um, uh, wing nuts and, and, and hard right conservative. But, you know, he would um, get drunk and throw money at homeless people, um, which would sink most politicians, right? Like that would just be the end of them. And then the next day to go, oh, man, like I have a drinking problem and I made a big mistake yesterday and I can be better. Um, and our current premier has no ability to say, oh, yeah, that was a mistake and I can do better. I will do better for you. Um, and I think that that's part of the reason why he uh, is not as popular as he is, is that uh, that, that he could be is because he uh, has that inability to 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 admit to mistakes and to say, you know, I can do better than than what I've done. Um, it's it's a. It's probably a fault that's not unique to him when it comes to politicians. I think that's probably pretty, pretty standard amongst people who um, uh, 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 try for positions of power. Yeah, there hasn't been very much of that sort of humility going around within the, the political sphere in Canada the last year. No. Sort of, hmm. you know, we, we, we really got it wrong, but, you know, we're, we're going to try this instead now. And... It's 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 really really unfortunate. Yeah, agreed. Um, you uh, at at so at what point so far um, have you seen where where we've had the the worst hospital overloading? Uh, was that would that have been in the first wave or the sec or the second wave just after Christmas? Or, you know, even where things are right now, even though they're, they're definitely going to get worse. You know, not, 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 not how they're I, probably going to go next week up until today. We, we are not at our worst. Our worst was in the second wave. And it's hard to know exactly what's coming down the pipe as far as hospitalizations and ICU go in our province. I think, I think Ontario has, has officially superseded any record for, for the pandemic in the last week. Um, and it looks like things are really falling apart there, and, and hence the um, the stay-at-home order that was initiated this morning, um, or was it yesterday? But um, but here it's been a, a lot slower, and I think lulling our politicians to into a uh, a sense of um, well, maybe it won't be so bad this time. Unfortunately, math, especially exponential math. Um, uh, hope is not a particularly good strategy. And so um, uh, I anticipate that things will get worse and we're just farther behind the curve than Ontario is. So uh, in, the, in the last wave, just following Christmas, what were the highest amounts of ICU bed occupation that was going on in, in Alberta? Um, I'll have to look at my statistics, which will take me two seconds. They're <laughs> pretty much up all the time. <laughs> Uh, nice and handy. Of course, I say that, and then I can't find it. <laughs> um, I hope you can edit. Oh no! Well, just you know, sing us a song. <laughs> <laughs> it's an option. Uh, yeah, we have this. I think one of the best parts about the pandemic for me. Um, this is my segue music. Um, is some of the journalists that have stepped up to fill the gaps. Um, uh, in our reporting, like I think we've all been kind of feeling um, sad about some of our institutions, and and the media institution, of course, has been decimated by the the uh, on uh, the arrival of the internet and and free news on Facebook. 
but there's just been some exceptional journalists that have stepped up. And one of them in Alberta has been Robson Fletcher, who's been doing all of our statistics. And so um, whenever I need information on, on COVID statistics, I turn to his, uh, his page. So our, our highest day was about 150, 149 for ICU. And at the moment, we're at 79. So we're about half that. Um, and what's been really interesting uh, in, in this wave is I, I see the ICU rates going up quite a bit faster than the hospitalization rates, whereas the last wave, you know, there was, you know, quite a huge ratio of hospital hospitalizations to, um, to ICU, about six to one. Uh, now it's about uh, three to one. Um, let's see, to 80 to, to 250. Um, so yeah, maybe about three and a half to one. So quite a bit more ICU. I think that may be indicating to us that the variants are much more um, pathological uh, than, um, or uh, uh, virulent um, than the original strain. And I think it may also be um, that in the first wave, a lot of the people um, that got really sick uh, were in the elderly population. And because they were in long-term care and maybe had some issues like dementia or were maybe in their 90s and they just decided they, they didn't want to go through the, the pain and suffering of a hospitalization, they had been made a comfort level of care and therefore um, more apt to um, end up on the wards or just pass away at their home or institution rather than come into the hospital at all. So it's probably a combination of that that's causing our, our ICU ratio to be much higher than the hospital ratio. And at what point will it, it hit the wall? Uh, so it's hard to know um, exactly with this, this, um, this battle between variants and vaccines, how this is going to play out. It's much, much less predictable than in the first wave or second wave where we could, you know, literally say like in the past, the, you know, this, you know, four, uh, 3.7% of, cases would end up in the hospital that actually ended up being 4.5 so quite a bit bigger, but I was using 3.7. Um, and that was very predictable. And I just don't think it's as easy to predict this time. Oh, okay. It's going to be going up as long as the yeah. exponential growth is going, we will have increase in our hospitalizations in ICU. It's the steepness of the curve that I think is less easy to, to predict. How close were you to the, the hospitals just being overwhelmed from, from the last wave? Just uh, I think it was. Year. I think it was pretty close. Our, our at our peak, um, we had uh, 755 inpatients, and you know, one of the things that uh, that that people need to know is that over the last you know 40 years, we've closed a lot of inpatient beds, so our capacity um, is much much smaller we've kind of started to run it like a um just in time inventory thing you know uh, the idea is is that the, your hospital system is the most efficient if you know there's never any empty beds um and and that that works maybe for just in time inventorying for a, a, a auto factory but 
for things like uh, airplanes that need to to land at airports, you can't have just in time delivery. You always need to have a bit of space there. And the same goes for for hospitals. And so we've decreased the capacity for our hospitals to absorb that. So yeah, seven. What did I say? Seven fifty five, seven sixty five at its peak, and ICU kind of around one hundred and fifty. And right now we're at eighty and two fifty four. So I heard. I watched. A, I can't remember which. Uh which channel it was or whatever, but uh, there was a report coming out of Ontario that, that from this one hospital where they were, uh, they, they couldn't even use a lot of their beds and a lot couldn't be attended to because so many nurses have quit because they've just had enough. They just can't deal with it. Have you seen much of that in Alberta? No, I'm, my field of view is very limited to one emergency room and one hospital. Um, so I don't have that, that bigger picture. Um, I can tell you that a lot of physicians have left the province simply because of the bullying of our uh, of our minister of health and of the the, the healthcare um, uh, the the government. Um, there's been multiple multiple people who've left to say like I just can't deal with this, especially family doctors where they they cut the amount of money that they were able to earn in order to um, to try and decrease the the spending in the health budget. Um, Hooray austerity. Yeah. Um, and this is disproportionately affected the rural areas where, you know, if you only have three doctors there and one leaves, that's a huge, huge difference. Um, whereas in, you know, in a big city, you know, you lose 10 family doctors. It's not, it's not as evident an impact. Um, but I tell you, I'm tired. Um, and you know, the government is now asking us again, to as emergency doctors to step up and provide services on the COVID wards um, because they're expecting the surge of COVID patients and uh, certain certain emerge docs have volunteered to, to be a part of that. And I'm sure there's there's doctors out there that are going, well, wait a minute, this was a completely predictable and preventable wave. Everybody I'm going to be seeing in the hospital is there needlessly uh, due to your policies. Um, and why should I be expected as a physician to clean up after your mistakes? Um, uh, you know, I'm just kind of supposing. I'm not in any of my colleagues' brains, but there's got to be an aspect of that that's going through people's minds. So when when they're leaving, where are they going? Uh, uh, there are other provinces that are quite happy to take our, <laughs> our physicians. I even heard, I can't remember which province, but one of the provinces was advertising in one of the like medical specific um, venues, say, don't like in Alberta? Come join us. I think it may have been Ontario, but I, I, I'm just guessing there. Gotcha. Well, that's, that, that plan is really backfiring on them too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Jeez. So what... I guess we've talked about it a lot as to where we're going forward and, you know, things aren't looking, some things aren't looking great and a lot of things are just uncharted territory and uh, we don't know where we're going. Um, Is there anything else that you'd have to say as to what you see going for the future? And, you know, there's also a letter going around the, the, the country uh, that's being passed off to to Ottawa and in the provinces, you know, asking them to to make a change. Uh, do you have any comments? Is that the on COVID that? zero open letter or one of the other ones? Yes. I'm sure there's more yeah. than one. Um, yeah, um, it's one like 
I've become kind of, um, uh, I guess, I have a unique niche for myself as an advocate because I've been working on climate for so long and, and creating change, mostly successfully, and now working on COVID and creating change. And again, arguably mostly successfully with the, the masks and, and some other things. Um, but it, it gets tiring after a while, right? And so um, it can seem overwhelming. And I've, I've heard this from some of my advocate colleagues, like, like we're, we're fighting against what should be common sense. Like we know where math goes, we know how to mitigate this and people are refusing to do it. And it just seems exhausting after a while. But, um, but I recall when I was, I did a stint in Nepal and I was, I was volunteering with an organization there on the weekend, something called clean up Nepal. And I remember showing up at this, um, Riverside park. And the idea was we we're going to clean up this park. And you looked at this park and it was just filled with garbage. Like there's a lot of plastic pollution in Nepal. And people don't have any, they don't have any dumps, right? So the people just throw it out or they burn it. And so um, looking at this, you know, two acres of plastic garbage, I'm like, we'll never clean this up. Like, there's just no way. But there were 30 of us and put your head down and you just pick up one piece of garbage at a time. And over two hours, that place was spotless. Like there was nothing left. And it was just because instead of looking at the big, two acres of garbage, once you start focusing on one piece at a time, uh, the, the issues become manageable. And it's, it's quite a metaphor for dealing with climate change or this overwhelming um, COVID crisis and that, you know, the, the problems seem, seem big, but, you know, one battle at a time, get the job done, make partners and, and work together. And, um, and it's amazing what you can do. So for me, the, the next big step um, is this, is this uh, panel discussion tomorrow. And I'm really hoping that, that maybe that little step of getting the WHO to acknowledge that airborne transmission is important and mitigatable will be um, one more little step that, that our, our crew has uh, managed to push things forward. So um, if there's you know, listeners out there that care about this and care about better policy you know get involved there's so much to do and um it's so fun um and important maybe fun's not the word but it's it's so meaningful um to successfully enact better change and to know you were part of it so i think that's a good note to end on so keep that in mind everybody awesome thanks so much joe my soapbox <laughs> Oh, actually, before we completely sign off, uh, tell everybody where they can uh, keep track of you. Yeah, I'm uh, mostly on Twitter now. I've kind of given up on Facebook. It's just too embarrassing and, and painful to be a part of that. Um, but on Twitter, I'm at jvipondmd. So at jvipondmd. Um, and that's probably the easiest thing, a place to follow my thoughts. Cool. And you said you're also involved with uh, Masks for Canada. Where, where can people yeah, so I'm, hunt that I'm down? Maskforcanada.org. And if you happen to care about climate, um, I'm the co-chair of the Calgary Climate Hub, 
and the president of the Canadian Association of Physicians for the Environment, um, which is a, a national organization. So um, yeah, lots of fingers and lots of pies. Awesome. More pies, the merrier. <laughs> so much shit to get done, man. <laughs> yeah. uh. Awesome. Well, thanks, Joe. Thanks for listening to this episode. The music you hear on this show is from the Jeff Lapp Trio out of Montreal. Find them at jefflapp.com. Shout out to Tara for doing the graphics for COVID on air. A huge thanks to my editor, Jeff, at Bean Co. Studios in Regina, Saskatchewan. Please visit ncoronavirus.org for more information on ECV. Click on Join Us. Through that, you can volunteer with ECV. And you can subscribe to our newsletter, which is full of great information, shot straight to your inbox from our delightful newsletter editor, Tracy. Also, please check out the blog at ECV. And hats off to Scott, our impeccable blog editor. You can find ECV on Facebook and Instagram and on Twitter at ncovid19. You can find me on Twitter at Mr. Farton at M-R-F-A-R-D-E-N. Till next time.